right, Brian. So I want to start with a tweet that Tsai Ing-wen tweeted recently, and actually it's very crucial for us to understand something much deeper. And again, this is something she tweeted. I welcome the start of talks under the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on the 21st Century Trade. A major step forward for Taiwan and also our trade ties with the U.S. and the world. Thanks to all who made the possible and continue to promote joint economic cooperation based on our shared values. Brian, as we mentioned before, that Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan caused this political and also this economic firestorm across the continent, especially we've seen the strong reactions from mainland China. But meanwhile, despite all the warnings that Pelosi, she made it to Taiwan successfully, and now Tsai Ing-wen tweeted this bilateral ties between Taiwan and U.S., what kind of message do you think she's trying to send to the world? And also, how can we expect such a reaction from mainland China after seeing the tweet? Yeah, so I think Tsai emphasizing the trade relations between the U.S. and Taiwan is significant in the sense that uh, Taiwan has long tried to boost trade relations with the U.S. in order to increase the incentive for the U.S. to defend Taiwan against the, uh, against the contingency of a Chinese invasion because of economic reliance or partnership. That would then encourage the U.S. to come to Taiwan's defense. Uh, this was a way for Tsai to avoid being perceived as a pro-dependence provocateur, for example, because there's so much discussion before his visit should happen, should not happen, etc. Tsai did not get involved in that debate. She did not get caught, want to get caught within, uh, for example, political contestation between Biden and Pelosi, in which the legislature and the executive branch of the U.S. were openly in disagreement mm. about whether to take place or not. And so in this sense, framing it as primarily about trade and rather about security, for example, that is significant framing, I think, for Tsai. And so I think it makes sense why she would kind of go with this framing in terms of how she depicts this to the international world. Brian, again, just go back to the tweet. We know that the, the, the trade relationship between U.S. and Taiwan at this moment is moving forward. But meanwhile, again, uh, standing from this mainland China perspective, this is going to be very difficult. Because in reality, the trade relationship between U.S. and China today, it's also facing major deadlock. I mean, it's not just because Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, but given this political atmosphere between the two countries. So do you think at this moment that Taiwan is seeing a much greater opportunity to grow closer to the U.S.? And meanwhile, that is trying to take advantage of the deadlock between U.S. and China at this moment. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting perspective on it, in the sense that, for example, the U.S. trend tensions provides a opportunity for Taiwan to try to fill into niches that, for example, China is vacating. Uh, there's a lot of cautiousness of China from the U.S. with U.S.-China trade tensions. I think one frame of looking at the U.S.-China trade war, for example, is that this is a technology war in some sense for the technologies that will dominate the next century. And so this is why there's contestation along those lines. And so I think for Taiwan then, which is caught uncomfortably too, uh, both countries, for example, are reliant on Taiwanese manufacturers, semiconductors. This is what increases the incentive for the U.S. or other Western countries to defend Taiwan. But reportedly, even China has its uh, Taiwanese semiconductors in its missiles that are pointed at Taiwan, according to some reports. And this incentivizes China from attacking Taiwan because it's also reliant on Taiwan for its own supply chains. Um, and so... Yeah, there's all composition then. I think, for example, to encourage the U.S. to defend Taiwan, then uh, 
cementing closer ties is crucial at this point, but I think the U.S. is also quite cautious, wanting, for example, to wean itself off of dependence on Taiwan. It's interesting when Pelosi came, for example, she brought the CHIPS Act, uh, which is precisely intended to do that, to actually mm. reduce dependency on Taiwan, but then she will frame this, for example, as economic cooperation or a room of uh, a kind of channel for cooperation between Taiwan and the U.S. Brian, how significant or how important it is for everyone to understand this one China policy today. Because remember, if we listen to the rhetoric from the mainland China, this one China policy has been the center of the political and also this economic rhetoric. But on the other hand, this one China policy does not go very well or has not performed very well for some of the countries, for example, Lithuania, Australia, and many other countries that who are actively evolved with a relationship with Taiwan. So again, I want to get your reaction on this one China policy. Why do you think mainland China keep on insisting on this principle? And also, what about the reaction from Taiwan government? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, one China policy and one China principle are key to know because this is the terms by which rhetorical debate between China and other countries is taking. Uh, China has a one China principle, that's its own policy, and the U.S. has one China uh, policy, policy and principle. So China's principle, U.S.'s policy. Uh, they're not the same thing, actually, but China will frame it often as though they are, that there is agreement with it too when there is none. Uh, the U.S. Its stance is to acknowledge the Chinese position, but not recognize it. And these are not actually the same. I think it's also important to note that every country has a different one China policy, which is not the US's. Uh, and so in that sense, there's actually not international consensus, there's not anything like international law regarding Taiwan. But then it is obviously to China's advantage to frame, for example, the US is unilaterally violating previous treaties and uh, or agreements or whatever. And that's the U.S. that is actually the one that is the wrong here. And so acting as if there is agreement on the issue of Taiwan, when there is actually not any agreement, that's a, a tactic, a negotiating tactic by China. And so this is something that has been, uh, there's been kind of pushed back against. But particularly with the Biden administration, there's been such ambiguity at this point, with Biden flip-flopping on comments on Taiwan, that nobody is actually very clear on what the uh, Biden administration's policy is at present. Hmm. Brian, I want to have one more question before we move on to our technological relationship between Taiwan and the U.S. at this moment. Now, speaking of the U.S., the question is very simple. Economically speaking, we know the partnership has already built. But how about this political and also this military partnership between Taiwan and the U.S. at this moment. Again, as we mentioned before, the reaction from mainland China after Nancy Pelosi or even during her uh, her visit to Taiwan has been very strong by implementing this military exercise and lasted for several days. And I think that sent a strong message not only to Taiwan, to U.S., but also across the continent. But meanwhile, everyone is asking the question, is U.S. willing to shoulder the responsibility if China decides to take more harsh or critical reactions towards Taiwan? So at this moment, I think the question is very simple. How reliable is U.S. today towards Taiwan if China decides to take further steps? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a question. So, for example, the Pelosi visit, uh, that is interpreted in Taiwan as a strong showing of support for the U.S. Uh, but then I think also there's a question about how much that commitment goes when there was open splits. Uh, the U.S. will respond with, for example, it has announced the future open navigation operations in the Taiwan Straits. Uh, it's possible we'll see a pattern of escalation between the U.S. and China, though I think both powers may be there are voices in both that want to avoid that. Uh, Taiwan, that's also not to its advantage if there is a pattern of tit-for-tat escalation that Taiwan is caught within and has no way out of and no control over for that matter. Um, but I mean, I think, for example, the U.S. will conduct some actions in order to show that it is firm in the face of China. 
Now, the question then is, to what extent is that coordinated with Taiwan? Whether following this uh, live fire exercises, which take place closer to Taiwan than during the third Taiwan Straits crisis, uh, if there's more room for cooperation uh, with the U.S. or if that will take place. And that's military, that's politically, uh, again, for example, I just mentioned that um, the Pelosi visit with regards to how it was announced and that it did lead to these reactions from China, which Taiwan may have not desired, that raises the questions about how much there is actually political mm. and, uh, military cooperation between Taiwan and the U.S. Taiwan sometimes may have no ability to say no to the U.S. when it comes to these visits or things that have repercussions on it, if that is what American politicians like they need for signaling, political signaling. And what about the benefits from Taiwan perspective? So in other words, again, we, and not only we, but the entire world watched that the uh, Taiwan and Nancy Pelosi sat down next to each other and had a, an important exchanges, you know, regarding this trade and political ties. But meanwhile, that everyone is also asking the question that what does that mean for Taiwan? Is that elevation of her image in Taiwan or is that actually a first step to indicate that Taiwan's a significant role in the U.S. relationship? So how does that gonna benefit Taiwan in the long run? So that's actually also a question because I think the visit it is primarily symbolic. A symbolic victories are important in Taiwan, but at the same time, for example, Taiwan does not actually gain in, for example, negotiating a trade deal that is not advanced by this. In terms of arms deals or other forms of substantive cooperation, that is also not advanced by this. Uh, in the past, for example, Pan Green presence would tout this actually quite strongly as a success in strengthening U.S.-Taiwan uh, US ties, because the U.S. is, of course, Taiwan security grantor in the case of a theoretical Chinese invasion. Uh, and so this can be claimed as a domestic credit. But I think Tsai would not actually do that at present because of the fact of the potential for uh, opening the window to strong retaliation from China on this basis of her so openly welcoming Pelosi. And so Tsai is being more low-key about it. Um, in the past, in another context, you would have actually probably played this up much more as a domestic accomplishment in order for domestic politics for elections. Mm -hmm. um, that's to be seen, though, how this is played in the future. I think particularly once things calm down a little more, it is possible that things will go in that direction. And the pan-green camp, that's say the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, will claim this as a credit in the uh, next set of elections. Mm -hmm. Brian, I want to move on to the next part of the conversation regarding this technological advancement. Again, you know f something is so crucial that to China, to Taiwan, and also to the U.S., which is the semiconductor uh, development. And we know that today this is something very crucial, especially for the U.S. But one article recently came out to say it's not difficult to understand why China has subsidized semiconductor companies to build factories through various policy incentives. Now, help us to understand what is the current status in terms of semiconductor relationship or development in Taiwan? And why do you think that China is so paying so much attention to this business development is that a competition with the u.s or that's actually sending another message to taiwan i think it's both i mean for example neither the u.s or china really want to be so dependent on taiwan for semiconductors despite the fact that for example they will as with the u.s say that they are cooperating with taiwan on this this way to boost cooperation and so forth uh, but it's a taiwan's advantage to maintain it's a it's semiconductor supremacy with both actually because this dissuades china from mating because they're also dependent on taiwan and increases the incentive for the u.s to benefit uh taiwan uh, to, to act on uh, defense of Taiwan. And so what's interesting there is this is an advantage the government is, is hoping to keep. And uh, there's actually kind of room for some negotiation, but I do think that the major semiconductor companies such as TSMC do have facilities actually in China. 
but also in the U.S. or where they're under construction. And these are usually less advanced facilities while uh, TSMC tries to retain the advanced technologies within Taiwan itself in order to maintain this importance. Uh, but the company is pushed to the point in which it does actually have to build elsewhere. And so then there'll become this push and pull between the two. And uh, I think particularly for the semiconductor industry, they benefit by having a relation with the Taiwanese government in which the government will act on their benefit and give them a place at the table, for example, when someone like Pelosi comes, because of the fact this is vital for Taiwan's defense. And I think they realize that as well. And so I think this is part of why, uh, for example, you do see coordination between the semiconductor industry and the Taiwanese government. But Brian, let's be honest that that speaking of the semiconductor development for mainland China, but we know that today when we look at this technological advancement, China has been falling behind. So in other words, this is really difficult for China to keep up with some of the companies. But right now, again, U.S. and China in this competitive mood and both countries are trying to gain the advantage in this business or in this field. I want to be careful with the next question is, do you think it's necessary that for Taiwan to grow much closer to the U.S. in terms of this semiconductor relationship or what we call the chip policy came, uh, came out from the U.S. side to compete against against the China? together so in other words would you think that taiwan is more likely to lean towards the u.s to solidify the relationship by developing the semiconductor uh, business together instead of doing it alone so actually this is interesting because i think taiwan will play a balancing act between china and the u.s for example uh there have been economic measures by china directed at taiwan targeting for example mostly agricultural products uh, pineapple or grouper, which is a fish, or citrus, and that kind of thing. But these are substitutable products. They can be replaced. They're not what China is also dependent on, which is, in this case, semiconductors, which is an intermediate product that China needs for its own supply lines. It's uh, too dependent on Taiwan in that sense. Mm. But Taiwan, for example, could respond to military threats by threatening to cut off China from access to semiconductors. Uh, but this only works then if the Chinese supply lines are still dependent on Taiwanese semiconductors. And so I don't really think that Taiwan will seek to decouple from China, per se, with regards to that. Uh, although that may be what the U.S. does want. And this may be even an arena of contestation in which, for example, it won't just be cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan, uh, because you do want to maintain this advantage vis-a-vis -vis China. This is how you would have leverage over, uh, against China. And this is kind of your nuclear option there, if actually uh, push comes to which is cut off China from semiconductors. It'll have an enormous catastrophic economic impact. And so I think this is kind of the odd balancing act then that Taiwan is actually playing between the U.S. and China. Brian, which one do you think it's more significant or more important for China today? Because given the fact that we know the year of 2022 has been very crucial from mainland China. Again, we're looking at head of the uh, Congressional Party uh, a joint meeting in November, and so which means the current leader is going to hopefully that continue his presidency. And also, meanwhile, the Belt and Road Initiative play a significant role as well, not only on land, but also in water and also on this digital platforms. But right now, I think everyone is trying to figure out what is China trying to accomplish? Is it a political goal more important than the economic factors or this economic improvement actually outweigh the political ambition? Remember, you can't really have both at the same time, or it could be rather challenging to balance the economic stability and also this political ownership. I want to get your reaction on this. Yeah, that's right. Uh, for example, invading Taiwan would have an economically catastrophic impact on China. This not only in terms of semiconductors, but just in terms of the sheer size of Taiwan's economy and of China's economy, which was still affected by COVID zero and rolling lockdowns, as well as the economy was slowing before COVID, actually. Um, and so this had such a large 
impact economically on China, that is a question if the CCP would not take a major blow to its political legitimacy if that were the case. And so that is a factor that deters China from invading. And before the 20th National Congress, then, uh, for example, Xi might want stability in order to secure that third term of his that he's been pushing for. Uh, and what's possibly one doesn't want a crisis to distract things because things may not be okay. He does need to consolidate leadership. Perhaps there are challenges that he's trying to put down through this. This is really hard to tell because the CCP is quite opaque from the outside. But I do think that there are reasons, for example, that China does not want to actually dial up the tension in this case. Um, I think another question we're thinking about is what does China hope to accomplish in Taiwan here, actually? Mm. You might actually be handing the next set of elections to the DPP because usually what happens in the face of Chinese threats is people coalesce behind the pan-green camp and are supportive of it. And so China felt the need to respond in its way here because that's what it felt necessary was for its Pelosi visit. But that is actually in some ways contradictory to its own interests, unless it does really have much more uh, been hoping for stability because of this National Congress or it's not ready to act on designs on Taiwan, despite the fact that it will make a show of force here. And Brian, let's go back to the technology conversation. Again, recently, the Apple company has already moved part of their businesses to the neighboring countries of Taiwan, of China, which is Vietnam. So in other words, right now, a lot more U.S. companies, especially in this technological uh, field, they're willing to move their part of the business away from China. And instead, they're looking for the replacement in other countries in Southeast Asia. What does that say about the U.S. companies today? So in other words, just because the tension uh, uh, between U.S. and uh, between, uh, excuse me, China and Taiwan at this moment, more U.S. companies lost their faith and believe that China's wolf warrior diplomacy has caused major setback for the U.S. companies to continue to advance in mainland China. Do you think that's a really good strategy to move their companies out of China instead of going to uh, some of the countries in Southeast Asia? What does that say? I think part of it actually is not just the political uh, issues, also rising labor costs, for example, that China, the standard of life is increased, and so it's no longer as cheap to go for labor there, and they will move elsewhere because that's how companies work. Uh, but I also think then that because of the U.S.-China tensions, it is publicly risky for companies to operate in China, and so they don't know the measures that China will perhaps take against uh, technological companies to try to pressure them. I mean, China is also very dependent on these companies. It doesn't actually want them to leave in that sense, I believe. Uh, but at the same time, I think companies will view it as politically risky uh, because of actions by China, but also significantly from the U.S. actually, because the U.S., it is in their incentives to encourage those companies to get out of China, uh, to go elsewhere, to go places that are closer to the U.S. And so I think this is another uh, kind of push and pull in between them. I mean, tech companies in that sense, I mean, they go where the money is. I would not view them as specifically of one country. Um, and so they go where they can and make money and produce at cheap costs and avoid political risks. And so I think that is the calculus behind such decision making. Mm. Brian, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. And let's talk about the current relationship between Taiwan and Japan at this moment. Again, not only that this time Nancy Pelosi's visit brought this political interruption for mainland China, but also Japan has been very vocal uh, to uh, express their opinions and desires to be against China on this political front. And also, meanwhile, the Japan has been one of the few countries that firmly stands behind Taiwan. So help us to understand what is the goal for Japan to support Taiwan at this moment? And is there any political or at this economic benefits that Japan is waiting for if Taiwan decides to align itself with Japan? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so this is one of the interesting things, too, is that Japan is very much part of the equation. Uh, before the Pelosi visit, for example, Vice President William Lai from Taiwan visited Japan to mourn Shinzo Abe, the former Japanese prime minister that was assassinated. And this is the highest ranking visit by a Taiwanese official in 50 years. We talk about how historic the Pelosi visit was 25 years, but this is actually in some ways trumped by the visit of William Lai, at least in terms of standing to Japan. 50 years. Um, in that sense, there have long been uh, ties between Taiwan and Japan. Taiwan was a former Japanese colony. Uh, there's still positive views of Japan in Taiwan. Uh, after Fukushima, for example, Taiwan donated the most to Japan. And so there are these strong ties. Uh, someone like Abe played a role in facilitating vaccine donations from Japan to Taiwan during the uh, COVID-19 outbreak, mm. or the peak of that, rather. Um, and so what's interesting then, though, actually, is China's actions here, that when China fired missiles over Taiwan, uh, which is unprecedented during the live fire drills, some of the missiles ended up in Japan's exclusive economic zone. And the Japanese Ministry of Defense takes the view that this was deliberate, a deliberate action by China at signaling. And so then this would mean that China's own planning regarding, uh, for example, a Taiwan contingency includes Japan in that, that China also wants to militarily intimidate Japan uh, in the sense that it expects Japan could potentially be one of the other powers that would come to Taiwan's defense in the event of invasion. And besides the U.S., Japan is the major partner or player here in that sense, and it is a regional power. Japan does have a de facto military, though uh, it is uh, technically a self-defense force. And there have been moves, for example, to change the laws and reinterpret them so that Japan will come to invade uh, to the aid of an ally if in need, which would, in this case, probably mean Taiwan. Last thing, Japan is in, uh, obligated to respond to invasion in the sense that Okinawa is closer to Taiwan than it is to the rest of Japanese archipelago. Uh, even putting aside the U.S. Army bases there, Japan does have to have some response to Chinese military actions. But then China's actions in this time frame have also been directed at South Korea, for example, with ships, de uh, ships deployed to the other sea in the Bohai Sea near South Korea. And so I think China's reacting against other countries in generally in the new uh, security umbrella in the region. Brian, I want to wrap up our conversation with the question regarding the military in China. So in other words, we've seen the empowerment of military in mainland China. Of course, given the fact that military in China or in mainland China has been very ambiguous. So on one hand, people have seen that how powerful the militaries are. But on the other hand, in terms of this military secrecy, that's still a lot more yet to be discovered. So my last question I want to ask you, uh, uh, Brian, is how concerning we should be when we are talking about this military exercise or military power in China today, given the fact that, you know, considerably speaking, U.S. annually actually spent a lot more money on the de defensive system or on the defense budget compared with some of the countries. But we have not seen the effectiveness of the U.S. Uh, uh, military effectiveness against for some of the countries. But from your perspective, how concerned we should be when we see the military power, growing military power in China today? Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of the discussion of the military threat from China is a little uh, misleading in the sense that it's discussed in terms of a full-on invasion or nothing at all, as though those are the only two options. Uh, China has significant technical challenges to overcome and hopes invade Taiwan. Uh, this would more primarily be fought at sea, uh, you'd be trying to not get ships ashore. But then there are basic questions about, for example, does China have the lift capacity, that's to say the number of boats to bring enough troops to Taiwan to mount an invasion? And at present it doesn't. 
and China's working on workarounds, uh, for example, incorporating civilian vessels or uh, other landing tactics that would make it much easier to stage this, but it's very logistically complicated. And as we see, for example, uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's actually very hard to coordinate between the different branches of the military. Um, and this is, in fact, I think what these drills are aimed at doing. They're sense aimed at coordinating. Uh, some experts say they're uh, planning, for example, for an invasion. And I think that's particularly regarding just, uh, uh, for example, coordination, because just you have the air incursions that's been going on since 2021, uh, just since the Chinese National Day, which is on a near daily basis sometimes. And this is also a form of training, but that's only just for the air, for air fighters. Uh, and so you also do want the other branches of the military involved there. And uh, so there's those questions, but perhaps China could carry out intermediate actions, such as a blockade of Taiwan. Uh, and it's a question how it responds there. It framed the current actions as being a blockade, and that's what also Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense did, that this uh, was a blockade and should be responded to as such. Uh, but then, in that case, it was not a full blockade, and so what would happen then? Or China, for example, might hit one of Taiwan's outlying islands and take that, which would not be the full-scale warfare option. However, it is still seeing an escalation. So I think that's important to keep in mind, and I think particularly then when one hears U.S. policymakers talking about the China threat, oftentimes they are trying to justify their own budgets or raison d'etre, uh, just a reason for existing. Uh, and so I think that that assessment is is actually not always the most accurate. I mean, the Pentagon even recently stated that within the next two years, it does not expect to see action from China regarding invasion. And so I think that is also important to keep in mind, whereas China itself will try to project power, so they will play up their military power as much as they can, even when that they're not actually aiming at invasion right now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to Brian Hugh, and Brian is a freelance journalist as well as a translator. He's also one of the founding editors of New Bloom, which is the online magazine covering activism and youth politics in Taiwan and the Asia-Pacific, founded in Taiwan in 2014 in the wake of the Sunflower Movement. Brian, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and thank you so much for taking your time again to join a show <coughs> and just help us to understand this political and also this economic ties between Taiwan and the rest of the world. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much.